Hello and welcome to episode 197 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. How's it going, Nathan? Great. I just got back from a whirlwind trip to go see friends in Sacramento, teach my class in San Francisco, see my family in the 105 degree Central Valley of California. I watched my nephew play t-ball in 105 degree heat. Wow. So that was super exciting. And uh, yeah, just got back yesterday. So nice to be back home. Cool. This weekend I went to New York and saw Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, wow. And he was hilarious. I was somewhat hesitant because I thought that maybe, I don't know. I thought that maybe his jokes would be all from the past or like maybe he'd become a has-been or something. I have no idea, right? Because what's Jerry done since his show? I don't know. But it was hilarious the whole time. Like my face actually kind of hurt by the end because I was laughing the whole time. That's awesome. Good to hear. He's doing new material, huh? Yeah. So if you can see Jerry Seinfeld live to it. Cool. Yeah. Have you ever watched uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm? No. Oh, that's the show that Larry David made for HBO. And it's just, it's like, did you watch Seinfeld back in the day? I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's like Seinfeld, except for sort of HBO version of Seinfeld, like where they can swear and stuff. And it's, and it's Larry David, who is a very, you know, he's the co-creator of Seinfeld, but he's a very Mm -hmm. Costanza esque type of guy. Mm. And it's sort of him being, uh, an, he's playing himself being like this really aggravated version of himself who gets into all these like Costanza esque types of situations. And you, you probably like it if you're looking for a show. Okay. Yeah. I'll check it out. Okay. Yeah. Today on the show, we have an update, a concerning update on Thomas Jefferson's accreditation. We have a PSA on power score. Hmm. A question about how to best double check your answers. A listener has written in asking how to conquer reading comp, how to conquer reading comp. Yeah. Okay. And then if we have time, we'll try to tackle a question from test 71. I guess it's free on their website now. Oh, it is under the familiarization tool, isn't it? Yep. Cool. So section two, question one, if we have time, that'll be great. When this podcast airs. It'll be another 10 days until the June scores are released by email. The July LSAT is on July 15th. August 1st is the last day to register for the September LSAT. And by the way, if you are signed up to take the July LSAT and you get your score back on August 28th, that's about a month after the September LSAT, you may decide to cancel your July. After the July LSAT. After the Oh, I'm sorry, after the registration for the September LSAT. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You may decide to cancel your July scores and take the LSAT again for free until April of 2020. But here's the rub. You can't take the September LSAT for free, <laughs> which to me is ironic because that's the one test that probably everyone who's canceling their July scores wants to take and wanting to take, yeah, wanting to take a test again, they're going to want to take the September one so that they can apply early in the cycle. That's why they're taking July. In any case, we have called LSAC to 
confirm that they will not reimburse you for the September LSAT that you've already paid for if you decide to cancel your July scores. You'll only be able to take the test for free between October of 2019 and April of 2020. Dear God. It's weird. I don't know why they don't just say, okay, here's your money back. You have to register before you know what your scores are from July, but we get that. But why not refund the money? You could always call them and ask them. I mean, they do things. When you call them, they do things that they their website formally says that they don't. Yeah, that's true. Like here, here in L.A., they had a test. There was a test center in Irvine that a bunch of L.A. people had to sign up for because all the L.A. sites were full. And Irvine is like, you know, can be a two hour drive from LA in in traffic. And um, they opened up new sites in LA and the LA kids were looking at, well, you know, I I guess I should change my registration so that I don't have to drive two hours on the day of the test. But there was a test center change fee, of course. And uh, I had like six of my students call the LSAC and just ask them for a one-time waiver of the registration change fee. And they gave it to them. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I love, I love the use of the phrase one time. This is the only time I'm going to ask. It's, yep. You asked, but it, it's a just, great tactic. Totally special. Just this one, just this one time. Can you do it just this once? Yeah. yeah. And then everybody else finds out about it. <laughs> Thanks to my uh, TA, uh, Matt <laughs> here in LA. Uh, he, he's the one who did it first. And then he like sent a PSA helpfully out to my whole class and a whole bunch of other people did it too. So. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So here, I, I just, just this once, I just want to ask if I can take September for free instead of October. Yeah. You could, you know, I thought that, you know, you made, you said that the July test, if we canceled it, we were going to be able to take another test for free. And so that's why I signed up for September. And so I thought that the registration fee would transfer, you know, the, the boy at $200 is like really a lot of money to me. Can can you make a exception and just see? Yeah. Well, they totally should because they've been saying forever that you could take the test for free until April of 2020. To me, that includes September. Yeah, and they sent out all of they they sent out announcements to everybody on all of their lists, right? Including every LSAT student and every LSAT teacher. And so we've been talking yeah. about it nonstop, and it's like, oh, oh, just but just oh, but not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Not the actual immediate one. The next one, which, by the way, is two and a half months after the or yeah, yeah. two months and a week yeah. after the July exam. So it's like, yeah, I understand that it's going to take you six weeks to figure out, you know, to do your all your data analysis. But <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's very, very user unfriendly and kind of just it seems tone deaf to me. But it does. Well, who did they hire as the um, director of consumer delight? Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember that. that. That's the actual title. We're not making that up. Yeah, we didn't. Did we read that on the on the show? We did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, director of consumer or customer? Oh, it's customer. Sorry. Yeah, maybe when you Director call the of LSAC, customer delight. <laughs> if they don't give you, uh, if they don't, if they don't give you your one-time <laughs> waiver, 
Maybe you could ask to speak to the director of customer delight and see if he. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, "We are you making fun of us? We don't have a position here like that." You're like, "Yes, you do. Yes, <laughs> you do." Please find that person now. You could be like, you know, this feeling that I'm feeling, what is this feeling that I'm feeling? You know, it's delight. No, it's not delight. (laughs) Can I speak to the director of customer delight, please? (laughs) I would like to feel delight. I would like to feel delight. And I'm a customer. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Well, yeah. So the September LSAT's on the 21st of September, obviously, and... There you go. So if bottom line here is if you want to, if you're signed up for July and you think that there's any chance that you might take September and for most people, there should be some chance you need to register for that before or by August 1st, before you have any clue how well you did on July. So you just throw down the money yet again and sign up so you can take it. And if you don't have to take, you don't have to take it and you lose that money, but it's better than losing that opportunity to take a, a good test two months after the July test. I, I don't know. Yeah. I think a lot of people should be signing up for September right now. Well, what good does it do these students to wait another, like if they're ready to take it in July, then they should be also ready to take it in September. I mean, if you're ever going to be retaking, you should probably be retaking consecutive tests because yeah. you know you shouldn't have taken the first one unless you were happy with your practice test scores. Mm-hmm. So then the longer you wait to retake the 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 more time there is for you to you know stagnate or get I don't know burn yourself out or whatever. Yeah. People don't want to keep studying this shit for the rest of their lives. They want to get it over with. So I would always recommend that you just take, you know, multiple consecutive tests if necessary. If you don't knock it out of the park on the first try, then, you know, try the very next test. So, yeah, everybody probably should just go ahead and sign up for September if they're if they're taking it in July, even though they're not going to get the reimbursement, the free retake deal. Uh, Just another 200 bucks to the LSAC. Or at least you've signed up now, and so you can take it. And maybe, like you said, you can ask them, and maybe you do get your money back if you decide to cancel July. Yeah, they have changed policies before. (laughs) (laughs) And given long-winded explanations for these changes. but Did you see that they're bringing back the restrict test, the number of tests restriction? Wait, what? No. This is not... This is not 100% confirmed, but somebody sent in an image from an LSAC. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's in fake news, you know. But I'm looking at a slide here from Thursday, May 30th at an LSAC. Looks like an LSAC forum in Boston. LSAT repeater, it's a big slide, giant slide behind some dude at a podium speaking. LSAT repeater policy update coming soon. Hmm. And it's got bullet points. First bullet point, perfect score test registration ban. In other words, can't register for the LSAT if you've already scored a 180. Hmm. Interesting. Which, you know, who does that? LSAT teachers. LSAT teachers that like have something to prove. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to post, yeah, every so, Ben, that means I can take it. <laughs> Yay. Well, you can take Go it. Go for but, it. 
<laughs> nobody, nobody who got a 180 can tell you. Okay, whatever. No test taker can sit for the LSAT more than three times in a year. Hmm. Okay. So well, it used to so, be. Yeah. Well, that's worse than it used to be because it, it used to be three times in any two year period. Now it's three times in a one year period. So that's more restrict. Oh, no, no. it's less. No, no it refreshes. That's right. It refreshes faster. That's right. Yeah. Okay. No test taker can sit for the LSAT more than five times in five years. Mm-hmm. And no test taker can sit for the LSAT more than seven times lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) It's just unnecessarily complicated for one thing. Why? Why do they do all this? I don't know. I don't know. They're making money hand over fist. Let people take as much as they want. Yeah. Let the people eat cake. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, yeah. Um, Oh, July 2019 administration will not count in any of those totals. (laughs) (laughs) And appeals are possible giving extenuating circumstances. I need my lifetime cap of seven lifted <laughs> yeah you see because i got i was i was sick on the first one and i got a, a car accident and then I had family emergency and then the proctor was eating pistachios and <laughs> so i'm not sure i understand the purpose of these restraints but i don't see them becoming a huge hindrance well, the three times in a year deal, I can see that kind of sucking. I mean, it, but it, it depends though, too, because like, yeah, if you're at the beginning of the year, that sucks because then maybe you do January, March, and April, and now you've, you've well gone through your tests. They're years too. Like the way they do years is different. Oh, is it? I don't oh, know. LSAT year, maybe. probably, because huh. they have their weird like. Here's what the weird calendar schedule is. You know how they're always. Oh well, th- you know what though. Before it was different. Before the two year period was just two years from whenever you took the test. Oh, so, so like, maybe this is a calendar. Oh, oh, that's right. Like the clock starts ticking when you take it the first time. Yeah, like you took that's it. Right. In that's probably how June. this would be. I mean, that makes more yeah. sense. Yeah. It is kind of weird though. Well, otherwise Why? you could take it six times in a row. <laughs> yeah. As long as it passed New Year's Day, you know, but that's what I was thinking, but yeah. Or oh, but no, five times in a row though because they have the five times in five years banned. <laughs> Don't want to trigger that. <laughs> it's like an LSAT logic game. It's like what's the maximum times you could take the LSAT in 3 years? Or in or sorry, what's the minimum amount of time it would take you to reach the lifetime ban? Mm, yeah, assuming there were no extenuating circumstances. <laughs> what's the maximum times you could take the LSAT between now and July of 2022, including if you did take the July 2019 test? <laughs> Which, by the way, doesn't count. <laughs> the answer enough. is eight. <laughs> Anyway, it says coming soon at the top of the 
page. I don't even know what this thing was from. I don't know where, where this came from. It could totally be fake news, but it seems like something they would do anyway. So <laughs> whatever. We'll get somebody to confirm that, I'm sure. Listeners, please email help at thinking else at and uh, <laughs> let us know if we're totally off base or what. You know, we need to make a slideshow and take pictures with some authoritative looking person, like maybe in a suit, not one of us. And the slide could have a whole bunch of like entertaining stuff, you know, how to determine the most commonly selected answer in a section as you're taking it. Right. And then <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> yeah. It would be all over that. They'd be like, Oh wait, Whoa, I got to see this video on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so email the show help at thinking When you email us, please include your selfies. If you're so inclined, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple podcast, YouTube, YouTube is growing by the way, Stitcher. And of course our lovely new website. Thank you, Sarah thinking Some people have been leaving reviews on iTunes recently. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Should we jump into Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, yeah let's do All it. Right. We got we got a bunch of people uh, sending this in. Thomas Jefferson Law School will no longer be accredited by the ABA. Should we just read this article? Well, it's long. I would say we jump to the three reasons I seem to remember them saying that they stripped their accreditation for. Oh, Thomas Jefferson, by the way, will appeal the decision and will remain accredited while the appeals process runs its course. But yeah, where are the three things? So the first reason that was given, which made me roll my eyes, was the ABA said that the school has faced, quote, a series of financial and academic challenges that has led it to be put on probation. And look... it's sad that the school is facing financial challenges, but I kind of feel like that's up to them. They, they took out a big loan, I guess, a $90 million loan, or they took out a, a big loan to build a $90 million facility. I don't know. That's their, that's like their financial market judgment, right? I don't know that the ABA should be getting involved in deciding whether or not that was a smart economic move or not. Okay. But in any case, the ABA decided that it wasn't, that it put him in too much of a financial predicament, which I guess makes the ABA concerned about students, but whatever. So they said that they were on probation for that. They haven't resolved that sufficiently. And so the ABA, that's one of the reasons the ABA voted to remove their accreditation. The other reasons I thought were much more compelling, yet they were listed second and third, their bar passage rates are abysmally low. 21, what was it? 25% of the school's first-time test takers passed the bar. That is way lower than the Hastings, 61% or something like that, that we read a few shows ago. Yeah. I mean, we should point out that it is the California bar. It's the hardest of all of the bars. 25%, yeah, that's really low. They are clearly not only admitting applicants who appear capable of satisfactorily completing, well, satisfactorily completing the program of legal education. (laughs) All of the schools are doing that because they don't kick anybody out of school, really. 
they just, you know, keep harvesting your tuition dollars for three years. So everybody does that. But then being admitted to the bar, I mean, half the schools in California aren't meeting that ABA requirement. It, it says only Ben. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it should be, it should be necessary. I, you know, you solve all this by just saying you get your money back if you don't pass the bar. Like, I think that's the whole purpose of, of the ABA accrediting these schools anyway. It's, it's supposed to be a consumer protection kind of a, a measure, right? Like, hey, we don't want law schools out there ripping off law students who aren't going to ever pass the bar. Well, instead of like monitoring their finances and then saying, hey, your bar passage rate's too low, why don't you just make the schools give the money back? Yeah, no, I could see... If I were running a school and someone failed to pass the bar, some of that responsibility would be obviously on the student. And you could just shift the burden entirely to the school and say, well, decrease the number of people who are going to fail so that you can remain financially sound. I would be okay, though, with something as simple as, well, make sure that 90% of your people pass the bar. If, if, if it were something like that, then and you're not meeting that, then you lose your accreditation. But I do like the refund thing because you tell them, look, you got to refund them their money if they don't pass the bar. The schools are going to figure out some way to make sure these people pass the bar. Yeah. Like we're going to hold your tuition, the tuition dollars in trust until they pass the bar. And when they pass the bar, you guys get paid. That's your fucking job is to prepare them for, and you know, and yeah, that means you guys have to start doing bar prep. But the reason why schools aren't doing bar prep in the first place is that they know that their students aren't going to pass the bar. They know that a significant chunk of them are not going to pass the bar. And at Thomas Jefferson, it was like 75% of them. It's crazy. Which, yeah, okay, I get that that's that's totally shady. But my advice would remain the same, by the way. If you're there on a scholarship and you're kicking ass, you're in the 25% anyway. So, you know, like they weren't doing a bad job for the people that were there on scholarships. They were doing a bad job for the people that were there paying full tuition. That's true. Not only at Thomas Jefferson, that's true at lots of schools. Yeah. Anyway, what did they have another decision? Yeah. I thought there or was another reason, else, but I, I can't find it here right now. I don't know. But anyways, Oh, I think it was just that it goes along those lines. They, they weren't, meeting the bar passage rates and it kind of ties together, but then they weren't admitting those people who they thought were ready or likely to succeed. And that's one of the ABA requirements. But it, like you said, it's so vague. That's happening at every school. Yeah. And I just want to be clear, you know, like if Thomas Jefferson was the best school you could get a full ride to, then you were already a, you know, marginal you're, you're already kind of a bar exam risk in at other schools as well. Like, I don't think that going to Loyola here in LA or going to Southwestern or Pepperdine or whatever university of San Diego, I don't think going to any of those schools makes you a better bar risk. You're just going to have to pay for it instead of getting a scholarship. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, Ben, is that Think about what does it actually mean? I mean, it says here that they have they have uh, applied for California accreditation, California bar accreditation, which that's what certifies you to that's how their students would get certified to sit for the California bar. 
the ABA automatically allows you to sit for any state bar. So if you go to ABA school, you can sit for any bar. But if you go to a state bar accredited school, which there are a lot of them in California, but if you go to a state bar school, you can still sit for the California bar. So I was just kind of wondering what difference does it actually make for students at Thomas Jefferson if they do lose the accreditation, what what difference does it make? Yeah, I mean, 75% of them aren't passing anyways, and the 25 that do pass, they're probably taking the California bar. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you, like people are coming from out of state to go to San Diego so that they can then go back to Nebraska or wherever they're from. I mean, that doesn't kind of just seems like far-fetched, you know? It seems like it's more just of a marketing problem, right? You said, right. oh, my school is no longer ABA accredited. Yeah. Right? It, so it's, then people get scared. Well, but it's not like Thomas Jefferson. It's not like because it's an ABA accredited school, it's a great school. I mean, there's lots of mediocre ABA schools. No. Yeah, right? I agree. So it's not like employers are like, let me see. Oh my God, you went to an ABA school? Yeah. Holy shit. Like you're hired. I mean, that's just not what's happening. So, so then I'm wondering why it even, I don't know. It just it's sort of, it's, it's, I'm like, maybe it's almost like a non-issue. The, the other thing is, I think when you're California bar accredited, then the students have to take the baby bar, right? The baby bar? Yeah. I don't know what you mean by the baby bar. Maybe it's just a California thing. In California, if you're a state bar school, not a ABA school, there's an uh-huh. exam you have to take after the end of your first year that they call the baby bar. And if you don't pass the baby bar, you can't continue year two, year three of law school. Oh, it's like they're saying, hey, we don't know about your law school because it wasn't ABA approved. So we're yeah. going to we're going to test you our, in yeah. our own way. Yeah. Well, why don't they do that at every school? I don't know. They should. <laughs> like, they should totally be doing that because I not always... like if you're ABA approved. All of a sudden, yeah. Like you're saying, it's not like you're you're great. Good to go. No, I've always said that I thought the baby bar should be administered at every school because it, the, the baby bar is there to protect you from getting ripped off. If you're there paying $50,000 and you study for a year and now you fail the baby bar. Yeah. The school shouldn't be allowed to take another 50 or a hundred thousand dollars from you until you pass that baby bar. Yeah. And so I don't know. It's like to that extent, if it's going to require Thomas Jefferson students to take the baby bar, I, I think that's a good thing. When so anyway, they take, it? they take it after like in the summer after their one all year. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's the baby bar. And if you fail, you can't continue or right. what's, what happens? Or now? I think there's a retake or you, whatever, there's some sort of a probation something or whatever, but it's not like automatic, like one and done you're out, but it's just, it's there to protect, you know, people like, protect from predatory schools that are just charging people money, even though like the people, nobody's going to pass the bar. Yeah. It makes it so that schools can admit like, you know, whoever they want for one year, but then they can't keep ripping them off for year two and year three. If they're like not getting their shit together. Huh. So anyway, I, the more I, like at first I heard this, Thomas Jefferson loses its ABA accreditation. And I was like, Oh shit. Like that's a big deal. But the more I think about it, the more I'm like, well, so what? Like what, what is the ABA really doing? I mean, what, what have they actually done to, to help law students or to, to protect law students in any way? Yeah. 
I mean, they're still letting ABA schools give these huge scholarships with stipends and everything. That's a direct transfer of money from, well, it's an indirect transfer, but it's a transfer of money from the students who are paying full price to the students who are getting a scholarship. Yeah. You know, and they've allowed law schools to charge exorbitant tuitions. Yeah. And they've allowed law students, law schools to continue to just have horrible bar passage rates. I mean, yeah. Okay. So Thomas Jefferson is the worst of California's 21 schools, but there's <laughs> lots of other schools with real, real low bar passage rates in California. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I don't know. It just seems kind of like, I don't care. You have any final thoughts? No. I mean, I'm actually glad that they're doing something. Yeah, sure. It seems like there's so many schools out there that should not exist anyway. And oh, well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if this is the first, you know, the first one on the chopping block and there are going to be, you know, like 10 more, then awesome. Yeah. It's like, if you can't get rid of a school that only 25% of its first time bar takers pass the bar, then you might as well just not exist as an organization for that purpose, at least. Yeah. It's a hollow, it's like a fake, you're like a fake watchdog. Yep. You know, it's a, (laughs) it's a, it's a, cardboard watchdog (laughs) or so that just like put there by the foxes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, so they're doing something. I just don't, I don't know. I would love to talk to Thomas Jefferson students and see what they think about it. So if you, or if, if you're a Thomas Jefferson student, or if you have a friend who is at Thomas Jefferson, email help at thinking com and put them in touch with us. We'd love to interview them and learn, you know, everything we can about this issue to try to give the best advice we can you know, I still, I'm standing by, if your, if your choices are Southwestern at full price or a full ride to Thomas Jefferson, I would, I would not pay full price at Southwestern. I'll tell you that. I don't care that they're ABA accredited because it ain't worth $150,000 to go to Southwestern and not pass the bar. And Thomas Jefferson, at least if you're there on a scholarship, at least you're not paying $150,000. The bigger question here is, should you really be going to law school, right? At that point, right? people got to think hard about that. And Which I know was the, that a lot, but that was the purpose of bringing up Thomas Jefferson in the first place was like, listen, yeah. if you can't get a better full ride than this, then don't go because you got to think about on average, these schools are ripping people off. And at Thomas Jefferson, if you're on a scholarship, you're in the one fourth of the class that's going to pass the bar. So good get yourself into that one fourth or one, you know, at, at other schools, Southwestern or whatever, it's going to be like half that are going to pass the bar. Not even yeah. quite. But like, if you can't get the full ride to Southwestern, then that means you're a below 50% chance of passing the bar. And people who don't pass the bar don't practice law. I mean, I know I, I have a friend who she's like totally smart, went to Southwestern and just can't pass the bar. It's hard. <laughs> and so if, you know, if you're there on a scholarship and you fail the bar, great. But if you're there paying full price and you fail the bar, it's a total disaster. Anyway. Next email. Yep. Hey guys, I just listened to episode 194 and I wanted to share my personal experience with PowerScore live online class. 
with my PowerScore Live Online class. During class, we would regularly work through individual LR questions with a timer running on the screen. It was typically between a minute and a half and two minutes each time we did a question. That's interesting. They must have decided beforehand how long they thought that question would take. We also took time to reading comp sections with eight minutes and 45 seconds on the clock. Yuck. This may fall into the, quote, need to keep the class moving category, but I figured I'd share my experience regardless. Okay, so let's dispense with the need to keep the class moving category because although that's definitely true, you need to keep the class moving, I always give people more than the time required because if people finish early, great, they can do other work. But if people are cut off, then they start to think that that's what they have to do. So I'm not going to give them eight minutes and 45 seconds. It's weird. Certainly not going to put a minute and a half on a timer on the screen and individually time people's LR questions. Oh my gosh, that's even worse. Yeah. So I, I tend, I don't know what you tend to do in class, but I tend to give people several LR questions that way. If we're not doing a timed section, I know you do a lot of timed sections in class, but if we're not doing a timed section, I'll give people several logical reasoning questions and then even tell people where they can find extra ones if they finish before everyone else. And so most people end up finishing what we need to go over or what we will go over and people who are faster, congrats to them, but they can go on and do those extra practice problems. But the whole point is to allow people to adjust to their speed, not one and a half minutes for a particular question. I don't know. It's just surprising to me. I suppose reasonable minds can disagree, but that does not seem helpful to me. Nope. It it seems counterproductive. I would just, yeah, I would steer away (laughs) from things like that. That's, uh, that's the exact opposite of what I try to teach people. Yep. Thanks Matt for the update. You want to take the next one? one? Yeah. Yeah. Hey guys, great show. I'm working my way through all of them with the intent of being finished right before July LSAT time. So if you've covered this already, forgive me. Do you have any advice for those of us getting accommodations who finish a section before time is up on how to go back and double check? I'm consistently getting minus two and minus three on reading comp and logical reasoning and usually feel pretty confident about all my answers at the end. My thought was first take a few deep breaths to clear my mind and then go backwards reading my answer and trying to disprove it by carefully rereading the stem. Wait, stim. Maybe he meant stimulus. Probably meant stimulus. I don't know. Maybe I'll get lucky and catch one of my mistakes. I usually understand my mistakes and pick the right answer without knowing what it is during review. Best. I don't know. Any thoughts? Well, my only thought would be when people take a section and then the time runs out, regardless of whether they've finished that section or not, I do want people before they look up the correct answers to go back to any question that they were unsure about and think about it a little bit longer. They ideally have already chosen an answer, the best answer that they thought 
would work for that question. But if there was something that's still unsettling about it, go back and see if you can figure it out. If this person is finishing the section early because they have accommodations, maybe they have double time. Is that what they said? Yeah. Anyways, that's not uncommon when you have 70 minutes to do an entire section. If they finish, what this person is saying is that I usually feel pretty confident about all of my answers at the end. I'm surprised by that. I mean, I've been doing this for 12 years and there's usually a couple questions that I'm still like, okay, I feel good about all of these except maybe this one and that one. I still feel good maybe about the answer that I've chosen, but it's not like a hundred percent settled. And so I'm surprised that that's not the case for some of the questions going through. And given the typos in this email, I'm not super confident about your confidence, I guess. I don't know. I mean, he says that he gets minus two and minus three on RC and LR. I think you need to work on being more sensitive to when an answer doesn't settle perfectly. Like you're getting questions wrong and somehow you're not aware of the fact that you're getting them wrong. So you're getting blindsided. And I'm curious, why are you getting blindsided? Are you really getting blindsided or did you just kind of throw in the towel and pick an answer and feel like that was good? If you didn't throw in the towel and you really felt like you picked the right answer, what the heck happened? Try to figure that out now after the test so that you can get to a point where you can be more sensitive to when things aren't perfect. Yeah. When you have extra time, I mean, if it sounds like he has too much time, I would just double down on the idea that you're going to get them all right the first time. Just, just read them more carefully in the first place. Going back and reviewing during a, during a time section, if you're going back and reviewing, you're, you're kind of multiplying your work. You're doing, you're doing it half-assed the first time and then going back and finishing the job or trying to finish the job. And then what happens a lot is people change their answer from the right answer to the wrong answer because they like outsmart themselves. Sure. Oh, this one's too obvious. That can't be the answer. Let me change it to this other answer choice that I don't even understand. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want him to do that. Yeah, they, they make sense. It, it does sound like maybe Deke's being a little too passive when he does the questions because it says that when he reviews, he can usually pick the right answer without you know knowing what it is without looking at the answer key. Yeah. That kind of sounds like he, he narrowed it down to two and picked the wrong one. And then when he goes back, he's like, Oh, well it's gotta be this other one. That's not actually understanding. That's, that's, that's like gaming it. That's process of elimination. And, and that's, I think when people frequently narrow it down to two, it's a sign that they're not predicting the answers well enough, not understanding the questions well enough, not being critical enough the first time through the answer choices, just being like, well, it's these two are kind of close. I think it's maybe this one. Maybe this one's a little bit better than that one. No, no. Like there's one that's right and there's one that's wrong. Yeah. And you needed to presume that all of them were wrong until they convinced you that they were right. So Deke's asking for advice about how to go back and double check. I wouldn't double check. I would just be more serious about it the first time through, which I think is exactly what you were saying. Get sensitive to when, yeah, you're not aware or when you aren't a hundred percent sure. 
people just give up. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's giving up or they just like, they're just like, okay, well, I'm just going to go with this one. You got to be aware of when you're doing that. You just shouldn't be down to two answers nearly as often as, as most students get themselves down to two answers. The students who start scoring in the one seventies are more frequently eliminating all five and then going back through and being like, well, okay, all right. I was being too critical of this answer. It cannot be these four. I do see how I can make a case that this one's right. Okay. That's the answer. And it is. But uh, when I'm doing logical reasoning, I'm just almost never do I have it down to two and I'm trying to decide which one It just doesn't happen to me. Yeah. All right. I think we maybe covered that one. Uh, by the way, I mean, <laughs> we should just, I, I feel kind of obligated to just again, point out to the LSAC that their accommodation system is broken because like the only people who have extra time at the end of the section are the people who are getting these accommodations. I'm not saying there shouldn't be accommodations. I'm saying 53 and 70 minutes is an unfair advantage. People should not, most people don't have time to finish the sections in 35 minutes. They, they shouldn't be finishing the sections in 35 minutes, but these accommodated test takers, like they do. So I don't see how that's like leveling the playing field. I think it's, it's kind of this, what is it? It's like the marginal benefit of an additional five minutes decreases as you continue to add time, right? So giving someone five extra minutes is huge. So many people would die for that. And then 10 minutes is also helpful, but every time you add an additional five minutes, the help that that's giving you decreases right and like i think lsac has just come out with this huge number 53 minutes is the first option yeah time and a half really and it's the first option should be 40 minutes right (laughs) that would help so many people and then the next one is like 45 and and then it kind of tapers off maybe at 53 70 minutes is just a god-awful amount of time people who do that here they end up wanting to finish early and they end up walking around. Yeah. If you get real lucky, you might be in, you know, your own room with your own proctor and the proctor can end the section early for you. If you don't though, if you're with other people and you get accommodated for 70 minutes, yeah, you're going to have to sit there for the whole 70 minutes. Yeah. And if you finish in 45, then they're going to have a nice 25 minute. I don't know. You could literally take a nap, put your head down. <laughs> okay. Moving Kendall. on. Yeah, Kendall says, Good evening. I figured I'd insert a dramatic subject line to stand out. Well, we don't have it. Sorry, Kendall. <laughs> yeah. It's not here. <laughs> Keep reading, I'll look it up for you. Okay, okay, great. Now that I have your attention, semicolon. What? <laughs> this sentence, now that I have your attention, or this idea is not so closely related to the next one that we should connect them with a semicolon rather than a period. The subject line on Kendall's email was 911, please help. Okay. Okay. Now that I have your attention, 
That's not even a sentence, Ben. That's not even a sentence. That's, that's a, that you're Kendall. You know what I'm going to say next? Semicolon privileges revoked. That's not a sentence. How many times have we revoked those privileges? I don't know. It's almost like by telling people they can't do it, they want to do it. They're like, can I do it correctly? (laughs) Well, like the one we had last time with, with that personal statement with the four correctly used semicolons. Remember that? Yeah. But they weren't. (laughs) <laughs> but they weren't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like everyone's no. privileges have been revoked unless you know you're a badass. And when we talk about, was it Strunk and White? What's that guy's, that book? I don't even know the name of the Elements book of Style. Elements of Style. Yeah. If you know what that is and you're familiar with the rules in that book and you apply them, then maybe you could be the exception. But if you don't know what we're talking about, you can't use them. You're not allowed to. Now that I have your attention, I'm currently a paralegal and have decided to take the next step to go to law school. Okay. I've been studying for the LSAT for a few months now, and my score is a 145. I know. Dot, dot, dot. Yikes. My resources as of now are the LSAC books as I am 25 years old without financial help. Therefore, I cannot afford $3,000 classes on top of sustaining a means of living. Well, you could get one of our online classes for around $1,000. So let's You get the LSAT demon for $95 a month. $95 a month. Despite my circumstance, I know that there are more cost-effective study materials, which I am open to. Hmm. Okay. I understand the material of the LSAT. Whoa. No, you don't. Everyone needs to stop saying that. Yeah. Or I understand the basics or I get the fundamentals or I understand the question types. No, you don't. Stop, stop, stop. You don't. You don't understand anything. 145 is like you're getting half of the questions correct. That's not understanding. That's skimming the surface and you're not going deep. You don't, you do not understand it. My 170 students are always telling me things they don't understand. The 145 students are always saying they understand. Yeah, they focus on what they know, whereas the 170ers focus on what they don't know. Well, they don't, but the 145 students, they don't even realize that they don't understand even the ones they got right. Yeah. They they skimmed the true. surface, they guessed, they got right, they got them right half the time. They, you know, I don't know, it's one of these ones. Eh, yeah, 145. It's like, that's not, <laughs> you're barely adding value to, you're, you're, you're barely, it's just not good. It's not, in, you, you could score higher than 145 if you spent the entire 35 minutes and just did the first 10 and got them right. Those are the easy ones. Get yeah. the first 10 right, guess on everything else, you're going to be at like 150. So that's, you're just, you can't say that, Kendall. You don't understand. Anyways, go ahead. Well, I was just going to continue this thought. It's like, you know, those people, when you're asking them to explain answer choice B and why they didn't choose it and answer choice B is wrong and you're like, okay, well it's wrong and you got it right. So tell me why B is wrong or why you didn't choose it. And they give you some wonky reason. You're like, well, it's not quite right. And then they get defensive and they say, but I got the question right. And it's like, I don't give one shit. (laughs) Like there are people who got it wrong and they understand it better than you do. Right. So I don't know. It's just, it's a weird situation. I don't, I'm not saying that's true for you, Kendall. I'm just saying that 
it is interesting how people get sucked into this idea of like, I got the answer right, therefore I get it. Another version of that is the dude in it's, it's almost always a dude in class who likes to mansplain to the class why they got a question, right? Yeah. And it'll be like one of the 170 scorers, frequently a girl will bring up this question that she missed and I'll work through it and we'll talk about it and I'll be looking at her and I can tell that she gets it hundred percent, right? Like yep. she missed it and now she understands. And I know she understands because she scores 170s all the time. And then someone else pipes in. They're like, well, well I just some, thought of yeah. it like. <laughs> right. Then the dude who's scoring 148 has to come in with, well, also the reason why it's B is because. And, it, and then he says some half like just totally nonsense that, that is not correct. <laughs> He's talking right over the person who scores 20 points higher than him on the LSAT and me. And it's like. What are you doing? You this is this is why you're at 148. <laughs> it's because you think you know everything. Oh god. All right. Anyway, Kendall, sorry to um deviate there, but <laughs> it's not clear that you understand the material yet, at least. Kendall continues, but I get stuck because I do not have a structured lesson plan. <sighs> you know, people want this structure so bad. Like this and it's the reality is, is that if you go do practice problems and then really learn what's going on in those practice problems, you may not feel like you're covering a lot of ground or you may not understand how much you're covering, but by understanding several official LSAT questions, you don't realize it, but you're covering 80% of the tests right there. I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's a flaw question a weekend question, a role question. It's like we start talking about it and someone misidentifies the conclusion. And then we go through why this other claim is actually the conclusion. And the mere fact that they now understand why that claim is actually the main conclusion unlocks hundreds of other questions that they will encounter in the future because they now understand that concept. There's not that many concepts. You just have to get your mind wrapped around them. In any case, so there's such this desire for like, let me make sure I cover everything in some order. No, you're just going to keep seeing the same stuff over and over again. You just have to dig in and understand it. But anyways. yeah, there's not, it's the LSAT is almost a content free test. It's a test of reading and logic and you, you just, you do need to practice and it, you don't, yeah, you get the demon and just start doing questions right now. Just do right. Just do something right now. Yeah. That's, that's your structure. <laughs> I mean, like, I under, I think I understand the, like the concern, there's this feeling of like, they don't see the big picture. And so they're worried that there's so much out there that they, that they maybe don't know. But it's like, if you really do understand the stuff that you're tackling or, or you let yourself begin to understand it, then you are coming back to the same things that are tested it's just that they don't understand. Well, they think they also think they need they think they need the structure because that's what other classes look like. Right? Yeah. Uh, but you mean right, you could take a $3,000 Kaplan class and they would give you all sorts of structure. Too much structure. But their structure is a bunch of hokey bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're going to teach you a bunch of a bunch of gimmicky you know, but they're going to like chapter one, 
grouping games. It's like, oh God, really? I mean, <laughs> you're going to be memorizing a bunch of shit that is just not, not helpful. Yeah. So I, I don't, yeah, I think you don't actually need the structure, but. Kendall continues. It's difficult to not have support or guidance in figuring out why it is that I get stuck in certain parts of the tests. Okay. It's understandable. You want help. My most difficult demon to conquer right now is reading comprehension. I hate it with a passion. I clearly do not have a structured strategy as to how to master and dissect this section. And any method I have Googled purely sucks. Any guidance would be greatly appreciated from you guys. I at least want a 150 on my LSAT and I know that is more than doable. Thank you for your time and I hope to hear from you soon. P.S. I really enjoy your podcast and the humorous bantering helps to keep this process more fun and lively for me. Well, thanks, Kendall. Reading comp. Well, we've talked a lot about this on the show. Yeah, you know, if she wants fun, to, if she wants like structure and fundamentals, I think she should go back to the podcasts that we did recently and maybe re-listen to those LSAT fundamentals bits. That's about all the structure I think anyone should need. It, like we talk, that's all the theory we would ever give anybody. For reading comp. And I think it's going to be a lot more than if we start talking about it again here. No, yeah, I'm not going to do that again. I mean, it, again, it's like a, she wants a strategy as to as how as to how to master and dissect the section, and she wants like a method. Kendall, you just need to read the passage more carefully and actually comprehend what they're saying. You're not understanding what they want. And so I don't give a shit if you're going to diagram and highlight and underline and have any kind of strategy that none of that is, none of that is doing anything for you. What you need to do is you need to read those passages better. You'll hate them less if you understand them more. Here, here, here's an exercise for you to work on. Re, pull out a reading comp passage, read the first sentence to yourself in your head, then look up from the page and explain it to someone who's your imaginary friend who's in high school or maybe even middle school in a way that they can understand what was said. And the reality is that you're going to struggle with this. And if you look back down at the page because you don't remember what was said or it's not clear in your mind what was said, you're not doing enough to take the text and translate it into ideas. You need the, you need to read the sentence and then in your head, know what idea the author was trying to convey. When someone knows the idea that the author was trying to convey, they can say it back to anyone else in their own words. If you can't say it back to someone who's younger, less sophisticated, and therefore in need of simplification, then you didn't understand the initial idea. That's the test that I'm giving people all the time when I do one-on-one -on -one tutoring. I'm like, okay, what's, what'd it say? And they start bumbling through their words or they look back at the text or they start just quoting it verbatim as opposed to just looking at me and saying, oh, well, this person is saying blah, blah, blah in their own words. Then I know the person clearly understood the idea of that sentence and we're good to go. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would pile on 
with that. And, and, you know, the, the next thing is also see if you can predict what's going to come next. Yeah. Cause by the time you get to the end of these passages, you should be predicting what they're going to say. Uh, not always, but, but fairly regularly, you should be like anticipating where their argument is going to go. Sometimes that's because of things, you know, in real life, like ideas, things you learned in school or whatever. Not, not that like your outside knowledge is meant to be incorporated into part of the passage, but you can certainly use your outside knowledge to help you better understand the passage. Mm-hmm. And w- one way that that happens to me all the time is like, oh, I start thinking about, oh yeah, they're probably going to bring up this like issue over here. You know, it's like, yeah, because when I'll, I'll explain it to my students, I'll stop halfway through the passage and I'll be like, oh yeah, well, I mean, I think the reason why they're saying this is because of this, like, you, you know, guys, right? Like you took, you took psychology what, 101 and you know that this issue happened, whatever it is like, you know, and then sure enough in the second half of the passage, that's what they start talking about. Well, okay, good. That means I'm comprehending. Yeah. And I think students are just sitting there with their eyes glazed over and like not never predicting what happens next, you know, just like back on their heels, just kind of letting the test run them over. And instead they need to get up on their toes. So I think we have two tips then is stop and think about explaining it to someone else. Also stop and think about what you think is going to come next. Yeah. And, and they really come in that order because once you do that first step and understand what's actually been said, the, the underlying idea, and maybe you have to read the sentence multiple times. Maybe you have to read the first part of the sentence, get your mind wrapped around that, and then continue through the rest of the sentence, whatever it takes. But once you understand that idea, then kind of thinking about where it's going to go next, it's still something you have to do and you have to pause and make the effort to do it, but it becomes a lot easier it might even, I mean, you might not even need to put the effort in. It might come naturally, right? If you're yeah. actually understanding it, I think your brain might start making some connections for you. Just yeah. like, you know, as soon as you get what they said, then it's, your brain's going to be like, oh yeah, because of this. Yeah. And that's what we do in class, right? All the time. It's like, uh, so it sounds like this person was saying this and then everybody's like, oh, okay. So then you shouldn't do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And look, that's what they said next. Right. That's what it really feels like to comprehend. And that's not, that shouldn't be like this miserable, you know, process that you hate with a passion. It should, it, it should be reasonably enjoyable. I mean, these, these passages are dense and they're a lot of times intentionally written in a pretty shitty way, but that doesn't mean there's not something there for you to get out of it. I mean, you should, you should try to love the passages (laughs) if you can. Yeah. Cool. Is that it for Kendall? That's it. You need to get your goal higher, Kendall. 160 is a much better goal than 150. And yeah, you you just, you need to really, you, you need to commit to the idea that you can actually understand things. And right now you're sort of like claiming to understand when I just don't think you, you really do. One thing she said, I wanted to point out, she doesn't have any support or guidance in figuring out why it is that I get stuck in certain parts of the test. I think there, don't you think Ben, she just, it sounds like she's not asking the right questions. Yeah. What questions are you thinking? Well, I want you to show me like this question right here that I don't understand. Mm. And 
about like what I don't understand about it. I don't understand what they meant when they said this, or I don't understand what they meant when they asked that, or I don't understand why this answer is not correct because it seems like, you know, and instead she's talking about her score. She's talking about getting stuck in certain parts of the test, including reading comprehension, which is this very broad issue. I think she needs a study partner. She could go to the Facebook group and, you know, try to find somebody who would be willing to meet with her on Skype or whatever. That's a free resource. But then you have to humble yourself with your study partner and just be like, I just don't understand this one question right here. And then one question at a time, you know, that's how you make progress. That's what the purpose of the LSAT demon is, by the way. So she could do the LSAT demon and, you know, do a free trial at least. That's free. Seven days worth of work. Yeah. Make the most of that seven day free trial. One question at a time. Each one, almost all of them will have explanations of the questions that you do. And if not, you just hit the ask button and we'll get right to work. I got like 30 requests in my inbox that I'm going to go work on right after we're done with this recording. Awesome. Awesome. Good luck, Kendall. So pearls versus turds. This was a piece of advice told to a student by their LSAT prep course instructor. Okay. My LSAT instructor at a prep course in New York City just said, if you have under a 3.0 GPA, presumably, go to business school and clarify that to say, and clarify that to say, if you have under a 3.0, don't go to law school. Uh, Okay. It's kind of blanket advice. I guess we do give blanket advice sometimes. I don't know why the alternative to law school is business school. Like what? <laughs> well, that's where is common that though. We get that all. I get that all the time. People saying, yeah, I haven't really decided if I want to do an MBA or a JD, but <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, do you have any idea how different those two things are? There's so much out there in the world too. Like, uh, have you thought about going into tech? Sales? Have you thought about starting your own business? Have you thought about being a school teacher? Have you thought about, I don't know, doing anything other than going to grad school? (laughs) Or yeah, yeah, go work on the Hill. I don't know. Like, so you apparently have to have a high GPA to go to law school. Well, there is something, there is some truth, I think, to this advice in the sense that if, if you had trouble cutting it in school, and I know that, I know that you went to law school, Nathan, with a lower GPA, right? You've said that before. Yeah, it's a very low GPA. Mm-hmm. And I and I was not a good candidate for law school. I do feel like GPA is is a good indicator of your yes. ability to sit down and do reading, <laughs> writing, and research, which yeah. is what lawyers do. Well, you know, it, well, let me also say because I have I have a pretty strong ability to do reading and writing not research. Yeah. But what I don't have is the ability to sit inside of like a corporate machine. I don't have the, I don't have the ability to like follow directions. And that's what school is all about. And well, and that's what lawyering is all about too. Yeah. I mean, like don't kid yourself. Like lawyers are cogs in a machine. And if you, if you like following rules and systems, like more complicated, the better. (laughs) the more restrictive, the better Then lawyering could be perfect for you. And when, so when I see people who have 
a below 3.0 GPA, I get really skeptical because I'm like, you know, do you, do you know how many hoops you're going to have to jump through? Like Mm -hmm. you didn't jump through them in undergrad. So what's different now? Yeah. Lots of times lots is different now. You know, if you went to undergrad and then worked for 10 years, you know, you, you were an idiot in undergrad then you worked for 10 years and then now I don't really care very much about your low GPA. And, yeah. it, but I think there's, it's more true than not true. I would be willing to give this at least a tie. I don't think it's a pearl because it's blanket advice that would clearly be wrong for some people. Exactly. I mean, if you were, you know, if you were a physics major at whatever university of Chicago and you have a 2.9 aeronautical engineering major, you know, somewhere it, like that 2.9 could be awesome. So uh, it depends on what the, what the GPA was in, but like if you're a 2.9 from San Francisco state in poli sci, uh, <laughs> that's not a very rigorous program. And you either demonstrated that your reading or writing or like work ethic are not really good enough to excel academically. And law school is going to be, a bazillion times harder than poli sci at San Francisco state. Yeah. I mean, I think in general it's good advice. I would, my biggest issue is the business school. Why is that the alternative? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. It says though then, and clarified that to say, if you have under a 3.0, don't go to law school. The business school thing might've been a joke, Yeah, but the under a 3.0, don't go to law school. There's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. And I, I can just hear all the hate mail help at thinking You know, you can tell us why you're a total exception to this rule. I'm willing to grant that there are exceptions to this rule, but those exceptions, you know, are going to probably have to come with a really high LSAT score. Yep. Uh, because you got to get yourself into a, a school at the right price. And if you don't have, you know, when you have a 2.9, your ship has sailed on Harvard, Stanford, Yale, and probably all the other top 14. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could still get a scholarship to a pretty strong school. I mean, you could go to George Washington or right, Ben, with a with a 170 and a 2.9. Uh, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> we could look, but uh, probably. Yeah. With a 170, I think you could. I mean, there are splitters all the time that, yeah. you know, have below the three O and they yeah. get into law school. But the question is, should you go? And if you have a low GPA, you have to figure out why you have a low GPA, but yeah. chances are you're not meant for sitting down, doing writing, reading and research. Cause that's yep. generally what your GPA reflects is your ability yep. to do that for things you don't want to research. Yeah. And that's what lawyers do is they research stuff. They don't want to research. They don't yeah, want to learn so, about. Yeah. It's super mundane. It's super dry. It's a super lot of work that someone else has told you to do. And you're sitting there in the office for 12 hours every day doing it. And yeah, like for, so the, and people who like that tend to get really good grades yep. because they're just like, yeah, tell me what to do. I'm a rule follower. I'll do everything you tell me. Like if you're a rule follower, awesome. But if you're a, if you're below 3.0, you're probably not that much of a rule follower. You're a lot more like me. And I was totally unsuccessful in law school and in legal practice. If, if there's a hundred people out there listening to this right now who have less than a 3.0, I would bet money 
you know, that half of you are not going to practice law. That's a boy, that's a no brainer of a bet because <laughs> half, half of the people who go to law school aren't practicing law. Yeah. So half of the people with below 3.0s are definitely not, not practicing law. Yeah. So I can see where this LSAT instructor is coming from. I would give this, uh, I can't give it a pearl, but I could give it a tie. Give it a tie. I mean, I, I think it's, it's getting pretty close to a pearl because I, I think it's one of those things that pushes people to think about what they're doing, but I, I agree. Yeah. I just, I don't, I, I, it's too pat to be, you know, something that I would, <laughs> I'm not going to go spouting off about if you have below a 3.0, don't go to law school. That's yeah, that's huge. true. Yeah. All right. So Ty, let me, um, I better wrap up here. So yep, do it. You can always uh, find us on Instagram at thinking LSAT. You can find us on Twitter at thinking LSAT as well. And Nathan at N Fox and me at Olson Benjamin. My website is strategyprep.com for classes in the DC area. Fox LSAT.com for Nathan's classes in LA and San Francisco. We also have online and one-on-one options as well. Our joint project is LSATdemon.com where you can Sign up for $95 a month to practice any part of the test and it will learn what you're good at and what you're not good at and give you more questions for what you need to work on. So that was show 197. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.